passage comes from Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was a child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, on this Christmas Eve day, we can uh, gather to worship and to hear from you. Father, the coming of your Son, his willingness to take on human form and draw near to us, is you, something you tell us is the most wonderful thing we can all experience. And I pray that this morning, Lord, whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time, that that would be our experience today, that we would have an opportunity to meet you and experience your love that you have shown us through your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, I mentioned in my sermon a couple weeks ago how much I love this Christmas season. I mean, the music the lights, the trees, the special meals, the celebrations, getting together with other people, seeing friends and family. I love all of that. And I love stories that capture the Christmas spirit, whether they be in books or in movies. And I mentioned I had a list of movies I watch every single year. And after I said that, I don't know how many people have asked me about my list. I think people are very curious what's on my list. And I'll tell you, I have obscure stuff and all the important usual suspects, like if it's a wonderful life, how the Grinch stole Christmas, and then we get to the modern classics, like Elf, you know, and uh, all the other good stuff. But 
You know what makes a great Christmas movie and a great Christmas story? It has to have a theme that resonates with the gospel story. And one of those themes, if you think about it, is reunion. Being with those you love. Uh, the family. Gathering. Being with friends. You know, take a movie like Home Alone. This morning, um, I was setting up our check-in station, and I hit test print. And if you're a volunteer, you may know this. You know what comes out on the test print of these stickers? It says Kevin McAllister, eight, age eight. And I was like, this is the sign. I think, I think I'm supposed to talk about Home Alone this morning in some respect. But if you remember the story, you have this eight-year-old Kevin McAllister who is accidentally left at home alone with his family while they all have left for Paris on vacation. And as much as the movie is about him taking care of himself and protecting his home from two bumbling burglars, remember the wet bandits, you know? Um, it's actually a story also about reconciliation. Because he had said some terrible things to his mom the night before. He wished he didn't have a family. He wished everyone was gone. But as soon as his parents and his family realize they have left him home, one of the main arcs of the story is his mom doing everything she can to get home to him, to be reunited with him. She'll even sit in the back of a box truck with a polka band, you know, like crazy stuff and the things she is willing to do. Why? So she could be reconciled, reunited with her son. You know, some of you made a long journey probably to get home, right? You braved the airports or you made the long drive to be home for Christmas. Why? Because you long to be united. You know, my daughter flew home from college on uh, Monday night and I was eager for her to be home because it just doesn't feel the same without her home. You know, and this longing of reunion is a theme of Christmas. Because Christmas tells us God has gone to great lengths to be with his people. He is willing to set aside heaven and earth. He wants to come and to be reunited with his people. A great cost to him. And this morning, I want to consider that as we look at this passage from Luke chapter 2. Because this story, it's a familiar one, I know to all of you in many ways, is composed of three parts. A birth, a sign, and a sermon at the end. So that's what I want to look at, because these first seven verses in particular, we see the birth of Jesus Christ. And during my sabbatical last fall, I had the opportunity, it was a privilege, to go to the Holy Land. It was my first time, I know others of you have been, but I got to visit Bethlehem, and it really, really had an impact on me. You know, it's a place you read about in the Bible, you read about it here, and then I actually got to go see it. And I, I have to admit, it had a really deep emotional impact on me in many ways, and it also helped me to learn and see some new things about this passage. Because we had this tour guide who was phenomenal, and she kind of opened up the passage in a new way for my group who was on this thing. Because we had to make this journey from Jerusalem, cross over the border, get to the other side, and our guide met us at this place called Manger Square. 
where the church of the nativity is, which marks the site on which Jesus was born. And our guy was a Christian woman from Bethlehem. She lived there all her life, and her family can trace her roots in the town for over 800 years. And she took us into the church, showing us the church she attends, this traditional site of the birth of Christ. We waited in line and did the touristy thing, looked at where they have a little marker on the ground, touched that marker. You know, and as I'm thinking through all this and going through the touristy stuff, we came out and she started to explain some of this story and this passage. And it helped make sense of a lot of things. And I want to share some of that with you because think about the story and what's happening here. Joseph and Mary, it tells us, had to come south to Bethlehem from Nazareth because of a royal decree for a census. Mary, remember, is pregnant and likely riding on a donkey for this 75-mile road trip. Okay? Think about it. It probably took him at least four days to get to Bethlehem. And as they entered the city, you know, we think they probably went to the Bethlehem Inn, okay? But in those days, it's just not what you do. You know what you do? You are expected to show up at your relative's house. You don't go and say, well, we don't want to inconvenience you. We're going to go get our own place. We have an Airbnb or a hotel here. That would be an insult, apparently, to the family of that culture because it would be shameful to them that they didn't even host their own relatives. So once Joseph says, I'm Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Methan, everyone would have known, hey, he's a descendant of David. And they would immediately have taken Mary and him into their home. Because that's just what you do in that culture. So I know you're thinking, so what is this business about baby Jesus being placed in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn in verse 7? Because it sounds like they were maybe rejected by the people of the city or even there was just no room available at a Bethlehem inn here because it was all occupied. But that was likely not the case. You see, the average house in ancient Bethlehem was made up of two rooms. The main room and a guest room. And the word translated as in in verse 7 in the Greek is katalima, which literally means room. Okay? Think extra bedroom in your apartment or in your house. Because there's a different Greek word, pandokion, which is used for a hotel, modern day hotel or an inn. And that's a word that's used in Luke chapter 10 describing how the Good Samaritan took the victim of a robbery to an inn, a pandokion. But again, the word used in our passage is katalima, which is room. So likely what happened was Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem, went to his family, but the guest room was already occupied, likely by other family members who had also traveled to Bethlehem for the census. So they would have stayed in the main room of the house. That main room was where people cooked, ate, slept. And at night, they would bring in the animals, whether it be the donkey, a sheep, or a cow, because they were valuable. And they also helped keep the house warm with their body heat. And in these ancient homes, they would have uh, oftentimes 
as a permanent feature, dug out into the ground, feeding troughs for the animals. A manger. And this is where likely Mary and Joseph stayed. See, only the very wealthy would have a stable where you house animals, and you didn't really have that in Nazareth, nor would they have a barn where you stored food. So, I don't know if I just ruined the story for you, okay? But baby Jesus was not born in a barn, but likely in a room in a modest house in Bethlehem. It was wrapped with strips of cloth that women often carried in their pockets to keep their hands warm. And they used this to wrap the baby up when they were born. And they placed him in a manger, a feeding trough for farm animals. Now, if that is exactly what happened, okay, so the nativity set you have probably isn't correctly displayed, and I have many of those too, but here's the thing you need to remember. It doesn't change what is important about this account. Because what Luke wants us to know is this. Jesus, the newborn king, was not born in a palace. He wasn't wrapped in a luxurious blanket, placed on a mattress with high thread count sheets, okay, in a golden crib, but likely placed on some hay in a feeding trough for farm animals. Parents, would you put your child in that thing? I wouldn't as a dad. You know, I'm just thinking about this. And this was deeply moving to me when I was visiting Bethlehem because the whole city was so unremarkable, okay? And I think this is part of the whole point. There was nothing there that would make you want to visit Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, it says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah describes it as too little to be counted, just even in his days. And the point is this, Jesus' birth, was incredibly humble. No one noticed it. He's not on the list of the wealthiest or the most influential or the most popular. He wasn't born in a world-class city, but in Bethlehem. It wasn't the religious center or the political center or the intellectual center of the region. That was Jerusalem. But God chose to have Messiah born without any fanfare in little old Bethlehem. This child who is to be Messiah. And what is this? What is it that is trying to be told to us? God specializing in taking the unlikely and the obscure, the overlooked, and doing great things with it. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Again, Micah, a king from Bethlehem. And you have to understand something else. As this story unfolds, you begin to see there is this birth announcement that comes along. And what is notable about birth announcements is usually who they go to. 
Because there are really two ways you go about announcing a birth. Look, even today, you know, when someone has a baby, they get a little picture of Jasper or little Lucy, and then you have a family picture taken with this new addition, and you send it out as a postcard or on paperless posts with all the crucial details, right? Name, birth date, weight, the length, and then you want to tell people mom and baby are doing well, right? <laughs> and that's one kind of announcement. You send it out to everyone you know. And we know there's another kind of announcement, the one that's a little bit more intimate, and the one that you send out to those who are really close to you. It's the one where everyone doesn't get this intimate piece, but it's who you call as the umbilical cord is being cut. You call the people who are most important to you. And maybe your parents or your very best friends, you know, if you're the guy, your wife may be still laying in the bed and you're making the call and you're saying, we had the baby and your wife next to you is saying, no, I had the baby. You didn't have the baby. And you say, we had a boy, we had a girl, we had twins. You call the people who are most important to you. You know, on my phone, when I tap uh, the phone feature, it opens up always to favorites. And then probably those people... Those five numbers are the ones I'm probably calling if something happens. These are the people who you call first. And notice who gets this announcement first in the passage. Did you notice this? God's only son. The one whom he loves. Who does he announce this birth to? Those most important to him. Shepherds? In the passage, we have this great distinction made between Caesar Augustus, who is the most important and powerful person in the known world, and we have shepherds, most unimportant, lowly, ignored, outcast, and despised. Shepherds had terrible reputations in the ancient world. People thought of them as dishonest, and we all know they're just all thieves. Okay, that's how people thought about them. They couldn't even give testimony in a court of law because you know they're just all liars, right? That's how it worked. And God sends his birth announcement first and foremost to the shepherds. And what is God trying to say? The incarnation of Jesus has come and God has not pursued the kings of the world. God has not come to say, I have come for the religious, the influential, the able, the successful, or the beautiful but he's coming to the lowly. He's coming to one who is saying, God, I need you. And which is why, of course, the shepherds are afraid. Because, hey, if you're out in the field and all of a sudden an angel shows up, you're going to be startled just because you're startled, because you're caught by surprise. But on the other hand, if you're minding your business and an angel comes, and the glory of the Lord now is shown around them, they're going to be frightened because they realize something. We are unclean people who stand before a holy God. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, he would go to work in the temple, and one day the glory of the Lord just filled that place and you know what he said when he experienced this? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He comes undone. And that's what's happening here with the shepherds. They understand God's glory is on them, and they are really afraid. And this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in, because as they are utterly terrified, what do you see in verse 10? The angel says, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news. The word good news is literally the gospel. I bring you the gospel of not just joy, but mega joy. That's the word in Greek. You can't get better than mega. I bring you good news of mega joy. And this is the most fabulous, wonderful thing that you have ever heard, shepherds. And in verse 11, they go on to say, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And there's several things about this sentence I want you to notice here. They say, it happened. It's today. You know, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, all the great prophets of the Old Testament, they always looked forward and said, when, O oh God, are you going to come? And the angel said to them, you guys need to know this has happened on this day. Messiah has come, the one everyone has been waiting for. Of course, that's great news. And the second thing is they say it has taken place in the city of David. And David is not only the greatest king who ever lived in Israel, he was also the greatest shepherd just like them. And the angel is saying, a savior has come to you, for unto you. And I think this is incredible because, hey, they may be people who are working out in the fields, and if someone said, Messiah has been born, they probably would have said, that's great. That's probably happened in Jerusalem. He's going to live in a palace. Perhaps he will restore Israel and free the nation from the oppression of Rome. But it doesn't really change their situation. We're still going to be lowly shepherds. I'm going to do what we do. But they are saying to the shepherds, the angels, that what unto you this day, for you. And I think this is so crucial to think about. This invitation is also for us. And it is telling us, for unto you. This isn't about your friend. This isn't about the religious person or the Christian over there. God is saying, I have a promise. And I am telling you, there is good news of great joy for you. You don't have to be a religious leader. And the reason I think he picked the shepherds is this is as average Joe as you can get in the ancient world. He's saying, I have come to save sinners. I have come to save those who can't save themselves. And this is what the gospel is all about, isn't it? God is entering our human condition. He embraces it. Comes to where we are in order to save us. He doesn't come to make us just a little better. He doesn't come to inspire us. He doesn't come just bearing gifts. But he says, I have come to get, bring 
peace, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation between God and you, even if you have absolutely nothing to offer. And of course, the shepherds, I'm sure they're thinking, this is just too good to be true. How can I even believe this thing? And so the angels say, there's going to be a sign for you. This is how you know this is all true. This is verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Think about that. Wait. The angels are confirming everything else. Messiah is one who has come to you, shepherds. They understand mangers. They understand swaddling cloth. They understand what it's like to be a poor person living in that place. And the angel is saying, God is coming to meet you. And he's going to be in a feeding trough for an animal. And this is the sign how you will know. Think about it. Amazing. This is the beauty of the incarnation. God is not saying you need to somehow fix yourself before he comes to you and offers salvation. Because I know so many of us think, I don't think God cares about me. I don't think I've been good enough to approach God. I don't think, and you can fill that in anyway. And let me tell you something, all of those things are utterly true, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is God comes to us in our worth. He loves us as we are in our brokenness. And he's saying, I've come to you to forgive because I want reunion. I want you. And that's the beauty of this sign. And what else is in this sign? There's a whole host of angels that are crying out, glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And if you think about again what is going on here, this whole story is incredibly offensive to someone who thought, God loves me because I've been so good. To someone who's thinking, I've been blessed by God because financially I've done so well. Whatever you've put your trust in, God is coming at Christmas and saying, that is not why I've come for you or anyone. I've come because you're in need and are you recognizing that I have come out of love because God has moved heaven and earth to come to save you, to be reunited with us. And eventually, he's going to hang on a cross, bear the punishment that belongs to us so that we can have new life that we can never have on our own. This is scandalous if you believe being a Christian is just about being a good person or a little self-improvement is what you need or a little refinement. But the good news of great joy is that you realize God is coming to bring his peace. Peace on earth. You know, this word for peace is shalom. And we might think of it as just some sort of peace. But in the Bible, the word shalom actually means the way the world ought to be. Because when you think about everything is working right now, it's not working as God intended it. When God created the world, he said everything is good. And it started in a state of shalom. It was perfect. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the world stopped being that. They didn't have a relationship with God any longer. Again, not the way it was supposed to be. 
There is war. There's broken relationships in the family. Cain and Abel, brother, murdering his brother. Dysfunction, hurt, disappointment. You see it in families, you see it in marriages, and you begin to say, it's not the way it's meant to be. Why do I feel so broken, outcast, wounded? And the angel is proclaiming, in the coming of Jesus, shalom is now coming. Because once he comes again, he's going to restore all things in the world, also in our own lives. You know, in Colossians chapter 1, it says this, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the sign. And you know what happens? Look, finally, the shepherds, they hear all this, and the angels go away, and this is my third point the sermon, and we'll be done here. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem, see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And they found Joseph and Mary and the baby lying in a manger. So all of this is done. They're saying, hey, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that, we, that has been told to them. They start running from the shepherd's field to Bethlehem, probably a 10-minute run, not that far. They get there, and you know how they find him? They just ask, hey, has there a baby been born? They go to a house. They find him lying in a manger just as the angel has said. And you know what they began to do? I mean, think about what this was like for Mary and Joseph. It's like, uh, we just had a baby. Who are you? Okay, you know, you're a bunch of strangers. You guys are smelly and dirty. You've been out with animals all day. Stay away from my baby. You know, and they show up and they tell this incredible story of how an angel has shown up to them and told them that this child is Messiah, that they would find him lying in a feeding trough. And they are sharing all of this. And I can imagine maybe there was a midwife there or others there, and they're thinking, these guys are off their rocker. But Mary and Joseph, you know, they themselves were visited by angels earlier. And we're told here, you know what Mary did? And all who heard it, they were amazed at what the shepherds told them. That's what that word wandered mean. They were amazed. And you know what Mary does? She treasures up all these things and ponders them in her heart. And the beauty of this is marriage is starting to do something. She literally treasured, preserved, thought about, bringing together like threads in a story to give careful consideration to because it's been nine months and she probably hadn't heard from the angel again since Luke chapter 1 and now there's confirmation yet again that God himself has come as Messiah and he has made good on his promise and as all of this is happening the shepherds they can't contain themselves so what do they do? They return, it says in verse 20, glorifying and praising God 
for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I mean, they're just going around praising God and saying, let me tell you what has happened. The song of Christmas remains in their hearts. They can't help themselves. This is what Christmas is all about. You know, I have a copy of uh, Dickens's Christmas Carol here. And you guys remember, after the third a spirit had left him, he wakes up in his bed and he experiences Scrooge, a utter transformation. And listen to what it says here. He says, I don't know what to do, cries Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath. I am as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. Whoop! Hello there! Hop! I guess those are 1800-type, you know, like very happy words, you know? Um, I was like, whoop, hello, okay. But a Merry Christmas to everybody, a Happy New Year to all the world. Hello here, hoop, hello. Here's this guy, he cannot contain his joy. Because once you meet this child, once you meet and experience Christmas, there is something transformative and a song is in our hearts and we cannot Stop talking about the beauty of what God has done. That's the sermon. You know, these shepherds give the first sermon about Jesus himself in the Bible. And here's what I hope for this Christmas, you know, for all of you. Hey, if it's been a long time since you've been to church and you're wondering, gosh, is God even interested in me? Christmas tells you something. If he's interested in the shepherds, he's interested in you and me. He wants us to draw near, number one, to him. He wants us to experience a love because he longed for reunion with us. That's who God is. The other thing I want to say is maybe, as with Scrooge, we would be able to keep Christmas in our hearts. And it says this at the end of the book, and it was always said of him, that he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that be truly said of us and all of us. And so as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. And friends, at Christmas, I want you to consider this invitation that God gives. to Say, I have come for you and connect to him. Merry Christmas. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have come to us in the person of your Son. You have come uh, to give us new life. You have come not because we earned it or deserved it, but you have come because you're a God of love and of mercy. And Father, we ask that this morning you would allow us to connect with you on that level, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time. May the hope of Christmas be full in our hearts. Help us to sing. Help us to lift up our voices and to go out as people to live for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.